Hi everybody and Happy New Year. Welcome back to the channel Storytime with Jack. I'm really excited about today's story. Uh, the reason is it's going to be our first story from the world of Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Not that. Pulp Fiction magazines were inexpensive fiction magazines that were published on pulp wood paper, poor quality paper that made it cheap for the publisher to make. They were published from about 1895 through to 1950s, and they were known for their quite racy covers. There were sometimes quite controversial pictures on the covers. The covers were actually printed in a higher quality paper stock. They featured very rich, colorful, highly saturated images that would draw people's attention. But the great thing about Pulp Fiction is that they actually gave a lot of writers uh, access to a large audience. In some cases, it gave writers their start. It really gave way to certain genres becoming much more mainstream. One of those genres is science fiction. And the story we're going to read to you today is by a fairly well-known author called H.G. Wells. The story is called The New Accelerator. It was actually first published in 1901 in the Strand magazine. I found it in a Pulp Fiction archive in the first edition of a Pulp Fiction magazine called Amazing Stories, published in 1926. And this is a story about a man who has a friend who's a professor who invents a stimulant. I think it's a great story to start the new year. It's a time when a lot of us want to do more things, make more things happen. In some ways, this story feels quite predictive in terms of the risks and also the rewards of such stimulants. Never more relevant than today, certainly ahead of its time. So tuck yourselves in, get yourselves nice and cozy. I really hope you enjoy today's story. It's a bit of a longer one, so hopefully you'll enjoy that. And let me read you a nice bedtime story. Okay, this is The New Accelerator by H.G. Wells. Certainly, if ever a man found a guinea when he was looking for a pin, it is my good friend Professor Giberny. I've heard before of investigators overshooting the mark, but never quite to the extent that he has done. He has really, at this time at any rate, without any touch of exaggeration in the phrase, found something to revolutionize human life. And that when he was simply seeking an all-around nervous stimulant to bring languid people up to the stresses of these pushful days. I have tasted the stuff now, several times, and I cannot do better than to describe the effects the thing had on me. That there are astonishing experiences in store for all, in search of new sensations, will become apparent enough. Professor Giberny, as many people know, is my neighbor in Folkestone. Unless my memory plays me a trick, his portrait at various ages has already appeared in Strand magazine. I think late in 1899, but I am unable to look it up, because I have lent that volume to someone who has never sent it back. The reader may perhaps recall the high forehead and the singularly long black eyebrows that give such a Mephistophelian touch to his face. He occupies one of those pleasant little detached houses in the mixed style that make the western end of the Upper Sandgate Road so interesting. He's the one with the Flemish gables and the Moorish portico, and is in the little room with the mullioned bay window that he works when he is down here, and in which of an evening we have so often smoked and talked together. He is a mighty jester, but besides, he likes to talk to me about his work. He is one of those men who finds a help and stimulus in talking, and so I have been able to follow the conception of the new accelerator 
right up from an early stage. Of course, the greater portion of this experimental work is not done in Folkestone, but in Gower Street, in the fine new laboratory next to the hospital that he has been the first to use. As everyone knows, or at least as intelligent people know, the special department in which Giberni has gained so great and deserved a reputation among physiologists is the action of drugs on the nervous system. Upon soporifics, sedatives, and anesthetics, he is, I am told, unequaled. He is also a chemist of considerable eminence, and I suppose in the subtle and complex jungle of riddles that centers about the ganglion cell and the axis fiber, there are little cleared places of his making. Little glades of illumination that, until he sees fit to publish his results, are still inaccessible to every other living man. And in the last few years, he has been particularly assiduous upon this question of nervous stimulants, and already before the discovery of the new accelerator, very successful with them. Medical science has to thank him for at least three distinct and absolutely safe invigorators of unrivaled value to practicing men. In cases of exhaustion, the preparation known as Giberni's bee syrup has, I suppose, saved more lives already than any lifeboat round the coast. But none of these little things begin to satisfy me yet, he told me nearly a year ago. Either they increase the central energy without affecting the nerves, or they simply increase the available energy by lowering the nervous conductivity. And all of them are unequal and local in their operation. One wakes up the heart and the viscera and leaves the brain stupefied. One gets at the brain champagne fashion and does nothing good for the solar plexus. And what I want, what, if it's an earthly possibility I mean to have, is a stimulant that stimulates all round, that wakes you up for a time from the crown of your head to the tip of your great toe and makes you go two or even three to everyone else's one, eh? That's the thing I'm after. It would tire a man, I said. Not a doubt of it. You'd eat double or treble and all that. But just think what the thing would mean. Imagine yourself with a little file like this. He held up a little bottle of green glass and marked his points with it. And in this precious vial is the power to think twice as fast, twice as quickly, do twice as much work in a given time as you would otherwise do. But is such a thing possible? I believe so. If it isn't, I've wasted my time for a year. These various preparations of the hyperphosphites, for example, seem to show that something of the sort. Even if it was only one and a half times as fast, it would do. It would do, I said. If you were a statesman in a corner, for example, time rushing up against you, something urgent to be done, hey? He could dose his private secretary, I said. And gain double time. And think if you, for example, wanted to finish a book. Usually, I said, I wish I'd never begun them. Or a doctor, driven to death, wants to sit down and think out a case. Or a barrister, or a man cramming for an examination. Worth a guinea a drop, I said, and more to men like that. And in a duel again, said Giberni, where it all depends on your quickness in pulling the trigger. Or in fencing, I echoed. You see, said Giberni, if I get it as an all-around thing, it will really do you no harm at all, except perhaps to an infinitesimal degree. It brings you nearer old age. You will just have lived twice to other people's wants. I suppose, I meditated. In a duel, 
it would be fair? Well, that's a question for the seconds, said Gaberni. I harked back further. And do you really think such a thing is possible, I said. As possible, said Gaberni, and glanced at something that went throbbing by the window. As a motor bus. As a matter of fact, he paused, and smiled at me deeply, and tapped slowly on the edge of his desk with the green file. I think I know the stuff. Already I've got something coming. The nervous smile upon his face betrayed the gravity of his revelation. He rarely talked of his actual experimental work unless things were very near the end. And it may be, it may be, I shouldn't be surprised. It may even do the thing at a greater rate than twice. It will be a rather big thing, I hazarded. It will be, I think, a rather big thing. But I don't think he quite knew what a big thing it was to be for all that. I remember we had several talks about the stuff after that. The new accelerator, he called it, and his tone about it grew more confident on every occasion. Sometimes he talked nervously of unexpected physiological results that use might have, and then he would get a little unhappy. At others, he was frankly mercenary, and we debated long and anxiously how the preparation might be turned to a commercial account. It's a good thing, said Gaberni. A tremendous thing. I know I'm giving the world something, and I think it only reasonable that we should expect the world to pay. The dignity of science is all very well, but I think somehow I must have the monopoly of the stuff for, say, ten years. I don't see why all the fun stuff in life should go to the dealers in ham. My own interest in the coming drug certainly did not wane in the time. I've always had a queer little twist towards metaphysics in my mind. I've always been given to paradoxes about space and time. And it seemed to me that Gaberni was really preparing no less than the absolute acceleration of life. Suppose a man repeatedly dosed with such a preparation. He would live an active and record life indeed. But he would be an adult at 11, middle-aged at 25, and by 30 well on the road to senile decay. It seemed to me that so far Gaberni was only going to do for anyone who took his drug exactly what nature had done for the Jews and Orientals, who were men in their teens and aged by 50, and quicker in thought and act than we are all the time. The marvel of drugs has always been to my mind, you can madden a man, calm a man, make him incredibly strong or alert or a helpless log, quicken his passion and allay that, all by means of drugs. And here was a new miracle to be added to this strange armory of files the doctors use. But Gaberni was far too eager upon his technical points to enter very keenly into my aspect of the question. It was the 7th or 8th of August when he told me the distillation that would decide his failure or success for a time was going forward as we talked. And it was on the 10th that he told me the thing was done and the new accelerator, a tangible reality in the world. I met him as I was going up the Sandgate Hill towards Folkestone. I think I was going to get my hair cut, and he came hurrying down to meet me. I suppose he was coming to my house to tell me at once of his success. I remember that his eyes were unusually bright and his face flushed, and I noted, even then, the swift alacrity of his step. It's done, he cried, and gripped my hand, speaking very fast. It's more than done. Come up to my house and see. Really? 
Really, he shouted, incredibly, come up and see. And it does twice. It does much, much more. It scares me. Come up and see this stuff, taste it, try it. It's the most amazing stuff on earth. He gripped my arm and walking at such a pace that he forced me into a trot, went shouting with me up the hill. A whole sharabank full of people turned and stared at us in unison after the manner of people in Shah's bank. It was one of those hot, clear days that Folkestone sees so much of, every color incredibly bright and every outline hard. There was a breeze, of course, but not so much breeze as sufficed under these conditions to keep me cool and dry. I panted for mercy. I'm not walking fast, am I? cried Gaburney and slackened his pace to a quick march. You've been taking some of this stuff, I puffed. No, he said, at the utmost, a drop of water that stood in a beaker from which I had washed out the last traces of the stuff. I took some last night, you know, but that is ancient history now. And it goes twice, I said, nearing his doorway in a grateful perspiration. It goes a thousand times, many thousand times, cried Gaburney, with a dramatic gesture, flinging open his early English carved oak gate. Phew, said I and followed him to the door. I don't know how many times it goes, he said, with his latchkey in his hand. And you? It throws all sort of light on nervous physiology. It kicks the theory of vision into a perfectly new shape. Heaven knows how many thousand times. We'll try all that after. The thing is to try the stuff now. Try the stuff, I said, as we went along the passage. Rather, said Gaburney, turning on me in his study. There it is in that little green file there unless you happen to be afraid. I am a careful man by nature, and only theoretically adventurous. I was afraid, but on the other hand, there is pride. Well, I haggled. You say you've tried it? I've tried it, he said, and I don't look hurt by it, do I? I don't even look livery, and I feel... I sat down. Give me the potion, I said. If the worst comes to the worst, it will save having my hair cut. And that, I think, is one of the most hateful duties of a civilized man. How do you take the mixture? With water, said Gaburney, whacking down a carafe. He stood up in front of his desk and regarded me in his easy chair. His manner was suddenly affected by a touch of the Harley Street specialist. It's rum stuff, you know, he said. I made a gesture with my hand. I must ward you in the first place. As soon as you've got it down, to shut your eyes and open them very cautiously in a minute or so's time. One still sees. The sense of vision is a question of length and vibration, and not of multitude of impacts, but there is a kind of shock to the retina, a nasty, giddy confusion at the time. If the eyes are open, keep them shut. Shut, I said. Good. And the next thing is, keep still. Don't begin to whack about. You may fetch something a nasty rap if you do. Remember, you will be going several thousand times faster than you ever did before. Heart, lungs, muscles, brain, everything. And you will hit hard without knowing it. And won't know it, you know. You'll feel just as you do now. Only everything in the world will seem to be going ever so many thousand times slower than it ever went before. That's what makes it so deuced queer. Law, I said, and you mean... You'll see, he said and took up a little measure. He glanced at the material on his desk. Glasses, he said. Water, all here, mustn't take too much for the first attempt. The little file glucked out its precious contents. Don't forget what I told you, he said, turning the contents of the measure into a glass in the manner of an Italian waiter measuring whiskey. Sit with the eyes tightly shut 
and in absolute stillness for two minutes, he said. Then you will hear me speak. He added an inch or so of water to the little dose in each glass. By the by, he said, don't put your glass down. Keep it in your hand and rest your hand upon your knee. Yes, so. And now, he raised his glass. The new accelerator, I said. The new accelerator, he answered. And we touched glasses and drank. And instantly, I closed my eyes. You know that blank non-existence into which one drops when one has taken gas? For an indefinite interval, it was like that. And then I heard Giberni telling me to wake up. And I stirred and opened my eyes. There he stood as he had been standing, glass still in hand. It was empty. That was all the difference. Well, said I, nothing out of the way? Nothing. A slight feeling of exhilaration, perhaps. Nothing more. Sounds? Things are still, I said. By Jove! Yes, they are still. Except the sort of faint pat-patter like rain falling on different things. What is it? Analyzed sounds, I think he said, but I'm not sure. He glanced at the window. Have you ever seen a curtain before a window fixed in that way before? I followed his eyes. And there was the end of a curtain, frozen, as it were, corner high, in the act of flapping briskly in the breeze. No, said I. That's odd. And here, he said, and opened the hand that held the glass. Naturally, I winced, expecting the glass to smash. But so far from smashing, it did not even seem to stir. It hung in midair, motionless. Roughly speaking, said Giberni, an object in these latitudes falls 16 feet in the first second. This glass is falling 16 feet in a second now. Only you see, it hasn't been falling yet for the hundredth part of a second. That gives you some idea of the pace of my accelerator and he waved his hand round and round, over and under the slowly sinking glass. Finally, he took it by the bottom, pulled it out, and placed it very carefully on the table. Eh? he said, and laughed. That seems all right, I said, and I began very gingerly to raise myself from my chair. I felt perfectly well, very light and comfortable, and quite confident in my mind. I was going fast all over. My heart, for example, was beating a thousand times a second, but that caused me no discomfort at all. I looked out of the window, an immovable cyclist, head down and with a frozen puff of dust behind his driving wheel, scorched to overtake a galloping sharabank that did not stir. I gaped in amazement at this incredible spectacle. Giberni, I cried, how long will this confounded stuff last? Heaven knows, he answered. Last time I took it, I went to bed and slept it off. I tell you, I was frightened. It must have lasted some minutes, I think. It seemed like hours, but after a bit, it slows down rather suddenly, I believe. I was proud to observe that I did not feel frightened. I suppose because there were two of us. Why shouldn't we go out? I asked. Why not? They'll see us. Not they, goodness no. Why, we should be going a thousand times faster than the quickest conjuring trick that was ever done. Come along. Which way should we go? Window or door? And out by the window, we went. Assuredly, of all the strange experiences that I have ever had, or imagined, or read of other people having or imagining, that little raid I made with Giberni on the Folkestone Lees, under the influence of the new accelerator, was the strangest and maddest of all. We went out by his gate into the road, 
and there we made a minute examination of the statuesque passing traffic. The tops of the wheels and some of the legs of the horses of the charabank. The end of the whiplash and the lower jaw of the conductor, who was just beginning to yawn, were perceptibly in motion. But all the rest of the lumbering conveyance seemed still and quite noiseless, except for a faint rattling that came from one man's throat. And as parts of this frozen edifice, there were a driver, you know, and a conductor, and eleven people. The effect, as we walked about the thing, began by being madly queer and ended by being disagreeable. There were people like ourselves, and yet not like ourselves, frozen in careless attitudes, caught in mid-gesture. A girl and a man smiled at one another, a leering smile that threatened to last forever. A woman in a floppy capelline rested her arm on the rail and stared at Gaberny's house with the unwinking stare of eternity. A man stroked his moustache like a figure of wax, and another stretched a tiresome stiff hand with extended fingers towards his loosened hat. We stared at them, we laughed at them, we made faces at them, and then a sort of disgust of them came upon us, and we turned away and walked round in front of the cyclist towards the Lees. Goodness, cried Gaberny suddenly, look there! He pointed, and there at the tip of his finger, and sliding down the air with wings flapping slowly and at the speed of an exceptionally languid snail, was a bee. And so we came out upon the Lees. There the thing seemed madder than ever. The band was playing in the upper stand, though all the sound it made for us was a low-pitched, wheezy rattle, a sort of prolonged last sigh that passed at times into a sound like the slow, muffled ticking of some monstrous clock. Frozen people stood erect, strange, silent, self-conscious-looking dummies hung unstably in mid-stride, promenading upon the grass. I passed close to a little poodle dog, suspended in the act of leaping, and watched the slow movement of its legs as he sank to earth. Lord, look here, cried Gaberny, and we halted for a moment before a magnificent person in white, faint-striped flannels, white shoes, and a Panama hat, who turned back to wink at two gaily-dressed ladies he had passed. A wink, studied with such leisurely deliberation as we could afford, is an unattractive thing. It loses any quality of alert gaiety, and one remarks that the winking eye does not completely close, that under its drooping lid appears the lower edge of an eyeball and a little line of white. Heaven give me memory, said I, and I will never wink again. Or smile, said Gaberny, with his eye on the lady's answering teeth. It's infernally hot somehow, said I. Let's go slower. Oh, come along, said Gaberny. We picked our way among the bath chairs in the path. Many of the people sitting in the chairs seemed almost natural in their passive poses, but the contorted scarlet of the bandsman was not a restful thing to see. A purple-faced little gentleman was frozen in the midst of a violent struggle to refold his newspaper against the wind. There were many evidences that all these people in their sluggish way were exposed to a considerable breeze, a breeze that had no existence so far as our sensations went. We came out and walked a little way from the crowd, and turned and regarded it. 
to see all that multitude changed to a picture, smitten rigid, as it were, into the semblance of realistic wax, was impossibly wonderful. It was absurd, of course, but it filled me with an irrational and exultant sense of superior advantage. Consider the wonder of it. All that I had said and thought and done since the stuff had begun to work in my veins had happened so far as these people, so far as the world in general went, in the twinkling of an eye. The new accelerator, I began, but Gaburni interrupted me. There's that infernal old woman, he said. What old woman? Lives next door to me, said Gaburni. Has a lapdog that yaps. God's the temptation strong. There is something very boyish and impulsive about Gaburni at times. Before I could expostulate with him, he had dashed forward, snatched the unfortunate animal out of a visible existence, and was running violently with it towards the cliff of the Lees. It was most extraordinary. The little brute, you know, didn't bark or wiggle or make the slightest sign of vitality. It kept quite stiffly in an attitude of somnolent repose, and Gaburni held it by the neck. It was like running around with a dog of wood. Gaburni, I cried, put it down. Then I said something else. If you run like that, Gaburni, I cried, you'll set your clothes on fire. Your linen trousers are going brown as it is. He clapped his hand on his thigh and stood hesitating on the verge. Gaburni, I cried, coming up. Put it down. The heat is too much. It's our running so. Two or three miles a second. Friction of the air. What? He said, glancing at the dog. Friction of the air, I shouted. Friction of the air. Going too fast. Like meteorites and things. Too hot. And Gaburni, Gaburni, I am all over prickling with a sort of perspiration. You can see people stirring slightly. I believe the stuff is working off. Put that dog down, hey? He said. It's working off, I repeated. We are too hot and the stuff's working off. I'm wet through. He stared at me, then at the band. The wheezy rattle of whose performance was certainly going faster. Then with a tremendous sweep of the arm, he hurled the dog away from him and it went spinning upwards, still inanimate, and hung at last over the grouped parasols of a knot of chattering people. Gaburni was gripping my elbow. By Jove, he cried, I believe it is a sort of hot prickling. And yes, that man's moving his pocket handkerchief, perceptibly. We must get out of this sharp. But we could not get out of it sharply enough. Luckily, perhaps, for we might have run. And if we had run, we should, I believe, have burst into flames. Almost certainly we should have burst into flames. You know, we had neither of us thought of that. But before we could even begin to run, the action of the drug had ceased. It was the business of a minute fraction of a second. The effect of the new accelerator passed like the drawing of a curtain, vanished in the moment of a hand. I heard Gaburni's voice in infinite alarm. Sit down, he said, and flop down on the turf at the edge of the lees I sat, scorching as I sat. There is a patch of burnt grass there still where I sat down. The whole stagnation seemed to wake up as I did, so the disarticulated vibration of the band rushed together into a blast of music. The promenaders put their feet down and walked their ways. The papers and flags began flapping. Smiles passed into words. The winker finished his wink and went on his way complacently, and all the seated people moved and spoke. The whole world had come alive again was going as fast as we were, or rather we were going no faster than the rest of the world. It was like slowing down 
as one comes into a railway station. Everything seemed to spin around for a second or two. I had the most transient feeling of nausea, and that was all. And the little dog, which had seemed to hang for a moment when the force of Giberni's arm was expended, fell with a swift acceleration, clean through a lady's parasol. That was the saving of us. Unless it was for one corpulent old gentleman in a bath chair, who certainly did start at the sight of us, and afterwards regarded us at intervals with a darkly suspicious eye, and finally, I believe, said something to his nurse about us, I doubt if a solitary person remarked on our sudden appearance among them. Plop! We must have appeared abruptly. We ceased to smolder almost all at once, though the turf beneath me was still uncomfortably hot. The attention of everyone, including even the Amusements Association band, which on this occasion, for the only time in its history, got out of tune, was arrested by the amazing fact and the still more amazing yapping and uproar caused by the fact that a respectable, overfed lapdog sleeping quietly to the east of the bandstand should suddenly fall through the parasol of a lady on the west, in a slightly singed condition due to the extreme velocity of its movements through the air. In these absurd days, too, when we were all trying to be as psychic, as silly, and superstitious as possible, people got up and trod on each other. Chairs were overturned. The Lee's policemen ran. How the matter settled itself, I do not know. We were much too anxious to disentangle ourselves from the affair and get out of the range of the eye of the old gentleman in the bath chair to make minute inquiries. As soon as we were sufficiently cool and sufficiently recovered from our giddiness and nausea and confusion of mind to do so, we stood up and, skirting the crowd, directed our steps back along the road below the metropole towards Giberni's house. But amidst the din, I heard very distinctly the gentleman who had been sitting beside the lady of the ruptured sunshade using quite unjustifiable threats and language to one of those chair attendants who have inspector written on their caps. If you didn't throw the dog, he said, who did? The sudden return of movement and familiar noises and our natural anxiety about ourselves, our clothes were still dreadfully hot and the front thighs of Giberni's white trousers were scorched a drabish brown, prevented the minute observations I should have liked to make upon all these things. Indeed, I really made no observations of any scientific value on that return. The bee, of course, had gone. I looked for that cyclist, but he was already out of sight when we came to the upper Sandgate Road, or hidden from us by traffic. The Sharabank, however, with its people now all alive and stirring, was clattering along at a spanking pace, almost abreast of the nearer church. We noted, however, that the windowsill on which we had stepped in getting out of the house was slightly singed, and that the impressions of our feet on the gravel of the path were unusually deep. So it was I had my first experience of the new accelerator. Practically we had been running about and saying and doing all sorts of things in the space of a second or so of time. We had lived half an hour while the band had played, perhaps two bars. But the effect it had upon us was that the whole world had stopped for our convenient inspection. Considering all things, and particularly considering our rashness in venturing out of the house, the experience might certainly have been much more disagreeable than it was. It showed, no doubt, that Giberni still has much to learn before his preparation is a manageable convenience, but its practicability it certainly demonstrated beyond all cavil.
Since that adventure, he has been steadily bringing its use under control. And I have several times, and without the slightest bad result, taken measured doses under his direction. Though I must confess, I have not yet ventured abroad again while under its influence. I may mention, for example, that this story has been written at one sitting and without interruption, except for the nibbling of some chocolate, by its means. I began at 6.25, and my watch is now very nearly at the minute past the half hour. The convenience of securing a long, uninterrupted spell of work in the midst of a day full of engagements cannot be exaggerated. Giberni is now working at the quantitative handling of his preparation, with a special reference to its distinctive effects on different types of constitution. He then hopes to find a retarder with which to dilute its present rather excessive potency. The retarder will, of course, have the reverse effect to the accelerator. Used alone, it should enable the patient to spread a few seconds over many hours of ordinary time, and so to maintain an apathetic inaction, a glacier-like absence of alacrity amidst the most animated or irritating surroundings. The two things together must necessarily work an entire revolution in civilized existence. It is the beginning of our escape from that time garment of which Carlyle speaks. And while this accelerator will enable us to concentrate ourselves with tremendous impact upon any moment or occasion that demands our utmost sense and vigor, the retarder will enable us to pass in passive tranquility through infinite hardship and tedium. Perhaps I am a little optimistic about the retarder, which has indeed still to be discovered, but about the accelerator there is no possible sort of doubt whatever. Its appearance on the market in a convenient, controllable and assimilable form is a matter of the next few months. It will be attainable of all chemists and druggists in small green bottles at a high, but considering its extraordinary qualities, by no means excessive price. Giberni's Nervous Accelerator, it will be called, and he hopes to be able to supply it in three strengths, one in 200, one in 900, and one in 2000, distinguished by yellow, pink, and white labels, respectively. No doubt its use renders a great number of very extraordinary things possible, for of course the most remarkable and possibly even criminal proceedings may be effected with impunity by thus dodging, as it were, into the interstices of time. Like all potent preparations, it will be liable to abuse. We have, however, discussed this aspect of the question very thoroughly, and we have decided that this is purely a matter of medical jurisprudence, and altogether outside our province. We shall manufacture and sell the accelerator, and as for the consequences, we shall see. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that story from H.G. Wells. I think it's a really fun one. If you did, please like and subscribe and leave a comment down below and share the story with your friends. Hopefully they'll enjoy it too. If you like the story and you want to buy me a coffee, there's a link in the description for that too. So there you have it, an introduction into the wonderful world of pulp fiction. Uh, there'll be more stories coming from the pulp fiction world for sure. It really gave some of the best authors around uh, their starts in some instances. Authors like H.G. Wells, Jules Verne and others, they all published in pulp fiction. And so it's great to have access to these short stories today. So thanks very much, Happy New Year, and I'll see you next week for the next story.